Well, hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, there you are. It's going to be weird to hear myself behind me. But hey, this is uh, something special that we love to do. God gifted us with this amazing place. And one of our favorite things is that we could worship God outside. And in this beautiful spring uh, weather, to just be in his presence together, to do what we do on Sundays, open his word, worship him, and are reminded of the ways that he's inviting us to follow him, to live with him to be with him the rest of the week. And so uh, we just love doing something a little bit different. And so the next few weeks, uh, we're calling it uh, May We Honor, that every week we are honoring a different group of people. And obviously today we are honoring all of you who serve so faithfully uh, with uh, inside and outside the walls of the church. And so if you are a volunteer, a leader, uh, you're serving in some capacity with Grace Monroe, just raise your hand. And we just want to say thank you. Now, that's almost all of you because I'm curious. I loved, uh, I loved the part of Andrew's story when he was like, yeah, we were going here for a little while, and then Megan came up and said, hey, you should serve. And he's like, well, I guess I should. How many of you, is that your story as well? Yeah, I see those hands. That's right. Uh, so many of you are serving, but I loved what he shared about being invited into a different kind of family, about finding a place of belonging and, and purpose of community uh, and that, that extends not just when we're here together on Sundays, but throughout the rest of the week. And that is our hope, our desire, that this faith life, this faith journey that we're being invited into isn't just this religious experience that we experience one hour a week on Sunday mornings, but instead that this time we have together is fuel. It, it's, it's that fire that carries us the rest of the week. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I smell that barbecue cooking, and so we won't... Uh, we won't linger too long, but you're going to want to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. If you need a Bible, we have our, uh, our Bible Pastor Outers. That's their official volunteer title. And uh, so just slip up a hand, and they will get a Bible in your hand. You're going to want a Bible to follow along uh, as we go throughout, dig into this passage. And I love, I love this story, uh, this account of Jesus' life with his disciples. And so we're going to read that in just a second. But just to remind us, you know, where we've been uh, over the last few weeks, looking at the Gospel of Mark and this account of Jesus' life and ministry. And that Jesus begins with this amazing proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. I know I say this almost every week, but the point is that the, the presence of God, the availability of God, is now with us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's massive. That is a game changer. Now, we know that the central question, and we looked at it last week, that Jesus asked at the center of Mark's gospel, which I think is actually the central question at the center of every human heart on this planet, is when Jesus turns and asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Is he just an amazing religious teacher with some great uh, slogans and sayings about how to live the best life now? Or, or is, he, is he a great prophet along the lines of so many prophets who brought messages, words from God or reminders to God's people? Is he even the embodiment of the, the old prophets of Elijah who, who called fire from heaven, reminding, showing, revealing the power of God? Or maybe he is God himself. 
God who took on flesh, who, who clothes himself with humanity, lived life in this broken, hurting planet, was tempted in every way that we are tempted, faced every pressure and pain that we face, knows what it is to be fully human and yet fully God in order to give his life away for us. That's the question he's asking each one of us. Who do you say this Jesus is? And so Jesus begins his ministry embodying and announcing the kingdom. In other words, what does the kingdom or what does it look like when God shows up? What would it look like if God just showed up in full power right now in this courtyard on May 1st, 2022? And we see Jesus as he would teach with the authority of God, as he would touch the untouchable, as he would bring healing and, and gave sight to the blind, restored hearing to the deaf, the lame would walk and even the dead would rise again. That we want to know what it's like, what God is like, we, we look at Jesus. And so, God, so Jesus begins this his ministry announcing the kingdom of God, but then the rest of the book of Mark, he will, or the account of his life, he will continue to remind his people what it would take to restore relationship back. It would take his death. It would take his suffering, his betrayal, because it was only in his dying that he would be born again into resurrection. And it is by our death with Jesus, our surrender to him, our receiving of his forgiveness that we can be reborn into this new resurrected way of life so jesus asked this question who do you say that i am and then he makes this this powerful challenge that in order to follow me you must take up your cross daily and follow you must die to yourself in order that the life of christ could be born in you that this is meant to be a daily walk with god not just a periodic religious thing do we get that? I mean, this is so countercultural. This the idea that the power and the presence, the reality of God could be available to us, not just on Sunday morning at ten o'clock, but on Thursday at six AM, on Friday at nine PM, on Saturday at our kids' soccer game, on Tuesday in our boss's office, on Wednesday at the doctors. The presence and power of God, the availability of the God of this universe who made you and knows you and loves you, is at hand in Jesus. And so what I want you to do, because we're outside and we kind of do things a little bit different as we are just uh, enjoying our outdoor worship, is uh, I want you to take Mark 9 and just whoever you came with or maybe just some people around you, even if you don't know each other, it's a great chance to get to know each other. And I want somebody, pick a reader, just in kind of groups of two or three or in your little family units, and I want you to read out loud Mark to each other, Mark 9, starting in verse 2, and then go to 10. Mark 9, 2 through 10. And let's read that out loud together. Mark 9, 2 through 10. So Jesus making this, or asking this, this central question and then making this radical statement that the one that has come to reveal God to humanity would have to suffer, be betrayed, killed, and then would rise again. And in the midst of this, this announcement of his suffering and death, and even of this uh, challenge that to follow him we must die to ourselves, he then gives a glimpse of his glory. I love that. In the midst of, of, of this announcement of, of the inevitable suffering and death of Jesus, he gives a glimpse, this hope, 
that the death is not the end of the story. And so he takes these disciples. I'm going to kind of just walk through this story a little bit, and then hopefully we can find ourselves in this story. So he, after six days, Jesus takes three of his disciples. These three are kind of his central core. Now, I think as we learn to follow Jesus and we learn to model his way in our lives, what we begin to recognize is that, is that there are people in our lives around us that God has called us to walk with. But then there's that central core of people that really know us, that we take into the, the innermost places in our lives, into those places of challenge, into those places of pain, into those places of struggle. And so even as we ask, uh, the question we, we ask is, who are your 2 a.m. friends? Who are those people that you could call at 2 a.m. when the world is falling apart and they would show up for you? Or vice versa, they call you at 2 a.m. and you'd actually answer. And if you don't have those people, begin to pray now. God, who are these people in my life? I love that Jesus models. He's with the crowd, sure, but man, he is focused on 12. And even within those 12, he's got his three. And so he takes these three up on a mountain. Now, mountaintop experiences are not unique to Jesus. We see them all throughout the Old Testament. And he goes up on this mountain, and on this mountain it says that he is transfigured before him. The word there, transfigured, is the same word. In the Greek, it's metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. You know, like caterpillars that become butterflies, tadpoles that become frogs. And so there's this sense of transformation that everything is, is changed in the blink of an eye. And they see Jesus outside of his earthly, his human tint of skin that he's wearing. And they see him a glimpse of who he actually is in his glory. And so what they see is they see that the, the way that Mark describes it is he, he is, he's white, like bright white, this bright light. And, and even uses his language. Like he's been bleached more than any bleacher could bleach. Elsewhere, they talk about how his face glows when Luke describes it, like it's shining like the sun. Right now we've got some cloud cover, but even if you're trying to look into the, into the sun, not a good idea. Your teacher should have all told you by now, don't look straight into the sun. But if you were to try, even right now, even as the clouds are kind of covering it, it would cause you to wince and turn away, much less if the clouds parted and the sun was shining brilliantly. This is Jesus who is almost painful to look at in all of his glory. And with him appear these two figures, Elijah and Moses. Elijah, who's the embodiment of the prophets. Moses, who's the embodiment of the law. In other words, all of the Old Testament is depicted in these two people. And these two people show up with Jesus on the mountain in his glory. In other words, that Jesus is even more, even higher, even more exalted than these two primary figures in Old Testament history. And it's actually interesting because it's these two figures that have had their own mountaintop experiences with God. Remember Moses in the desert as he's led up to the top of Mount Sinai where he receives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. And then he comes down from the mountain. And you remember what they said about Moses when he's coming back down from the mountain after meeting with God? That his face shone so brightly they couldn't look at him. So they asked him to put a veil over it so that it wouldn't blind the people. In other words, Moses' encounter on the, on the mountain with God changed him so much that he shone with the brilliance of God. And he came back with the word of God for the people. Elijah. In 1 Kings 
19. It says that he's fleeing for his life, scared of the, the queen of the day that was wanting to execute him because he was staying faithful to God. And it says that he flees to, the mount, to Mount Horeb, the mount of God. And on that mountain, he goes into a cave. And you remember this story? In that cave, it says that, that the, the thundering uh, the, the, the fire, earthquake, shook the cave, but God was not in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire until that still, small voice of God called him forward. And God spoke in that still, small voice. And led him out of that cave back into the ministry that he was called to. On that mountain, he encounters God. And so here on this mountain, Peter, James, and John are led to this place where they see Jesus clearly. Now, Peter, I love his reaction. Because it's exactly the same kind of reaction that I would have had. This is so good. I mean, Jesus is so brilliant. And not just Jesus, but you get Moses and Elijah. That they go, forget the other nine guys. Can't we just camp out here for a little while? Now, have you ever had that kind of moment with God where it was just so sweet, it was so powerful, it, it, it rocked your world, or it, it, it hit you to the core, where you experienced his grace maybe for the first time, and maybe or you wept in forgiveness or reconciliation, or, or you were at your absolute end and God showed up, or you didn't know how you were going to keep going and God provided. I mean, have you ever had that moment with God that was so sweet, so powerful, so tangible that your reaction was just, can we just stay here? God, forget the rest of the world. I love one of my favorite things to do, and I'm looking around this room thinking about some of you, some of you guys, is to pray with men and just to invite God to speak into their lives, into their hearts, to, to, to awaken them to his reality. And they'll have these encounters with God that are so powerful that, that it's not uncommon for them as they've encountered God in that way to just say, I wish I could just stay here right now. I don't even want to walk out the door. And in that place, so Peter, it says, he's like, can we just put up some three tents or three tabernacles, three places at the presence of, of this kind of God power. We could just stay here on the mountain. Now, I do love this little side note. Remember, Mark, I mean, uh, yeah, Mark is, uh, is being discipled by Peter. He's learning these stories from Peter, who's an eyewitness to all these things. And he includes this little footnote that Peter goes, can we put up three tents and just stay here? He said something because he was so scared he didn't even know what to say. I love that about Peter. I was, it, like, you imagine him interacting with Mark and trying to tell this story. He's like, we went up on this mountain, and all of a sudden, Jesus is changed in front of us. And, and he was so, like, so brilliant, so white, like the, the shining sun. I mean, the, the white that you're imagining, it doesn't even compare to how brilliant he was when we saw him clearly. And I was so scared. In fact, I was so scared, I didn't even know what to say. So I just, I, I just said, hey, can we just stay here? Let's put up some tents. And in that place, the voice of God speaks out over. And what does it say? This is my son. Listen to him. This is huge. If we could get this, this is huge. And, and, and the rest of the story hinges on us understanding this. The mountaintop experiences with God are not meant to be the norm. They're meant to sustain us in the everyday, ordinary life that we live. 
we want the mountaintop experiences to be the, the everyday, the normal. And sometimes I think we can get discouraged or wonder, where is God when our quiet times aren't rocking our world every morning? When we wake up and we're more worried about what the day is going to hold at the office than, than what the word holds for our lives. I mean, when we begin to, to be overwhelmed with the needs of our kids or our friends or our community, where, where it feels like things are falling apart and we're just waking up and trying to make it through another day. And we wonder, does this mean that I don't love God? Does this mean that God doesn't love me? Does this mean that this whole God thing is a sham? Because isn't it supposed to be a brilliant, mountaintop, shining, glory moment every day with Jesus? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not my reality. I mean, I love Jesus, and I, and I really do believe Jesus loves me. I know most all of you, or many of you, and I, and I can tell you that that's not your reality. When I read the saints of old, in fact, I don't see that, that as their reality. But instead what we find that the mountaintop moments are meant to sustain us for life in the everyday. So I want you to keep reading. And now turn to each other and re somebody else read 14 through 18. So the story continues. Now, I do say this a lot, is that way more important than anything that I would have to say is what God is wanting to speak to you through your word, his word. And so even right now, this, just naming out loud, this practice of reading the scripture out loud with each other, and then I would encourage you to have conversations around, like, what does this mean? What is this saying? How does this apply? It's one of the greatest practices you can build into your own life personally, but also into your family and your community life. And so... Jesus, it says, uh, or the, the, the voice comes from heaven. This is my son whom I love. <clears throat> Listen to him. Peter, wanting to stay on the mountain. This is good. Let's stay here. Let's make some tents. But what does, the, what does Jesus tell them to do? If the father is telling them to listen to Jesus, what does then Jesus tell them to do? Go back down the mountain. Go back down the mountain. And when they go down the mountain, back into the valley of everyday life, they are immediately, I want you to notice this, immediately confronted by conflict, frustration, confusion, pain, struggle, anguish. I mean, all the things that we face on a typical Tuesday. Amen? It's not unheard of, but the, the difference is, is that they've encountered Jesus in the mountain. They get a glimpse of who he is, the power that he carries, and now he walks with them back down into the valley where they're meant to, to live. And as they come into that valley, they, they, they encounter a crowd, and that crowd is arguing with each other. And I have this question written down. It's like, what, what were they arguing about? I can't even figure out from the, the passage, interesting conversation over lunch. Like, what, what, do you, what were they arguing about? It doesn't tell us. But they're having this argument. There's this conflict. And so Jesus asks them, what are you all arguing about? And a man stands up from the crowd. So imagine that they've come down. They're all fired up. They're giving each other high fives. They feel pretty good about themselves. They've met with Jesus. They've seen something that no one else on the planet has ever seen. Things are going to be amazing from here. And they come down and they come around the corner and there's a group of people with the rest of the disciples and they are just going at it. I think about how many arguments that I've had 
where at some point in the argument, I've actually forgotten what I was even arguing about. Anyone else? <laughs> where it becomes no longer about being right, but more about just proving the other person wrong. And so I just wonder what the dynamic there is happening about with these disciples. And so Jesus steps up, and as Jesus comes around the corner, it says that the crowd leaves the argument. There's something about Jesus that they're drawn to. They come running to Jesus. They marvel at Jesus. And Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? A man stands up, and he doesn't tell them what they're arguing about, but he does tell them what he's facing. And he says, I have a son, and my son has an evil spirit, and that evil spirit is trying to destroy his life. And I asked your disciples, I brought them to your disciples to be healed. And I've heard the stories of the ways that, that you've worked. I've heard the stories about the ways that they've worked, the things that God has done through your disciples. And I thought, surely they can help my son. But they couldn't do anything for him. Have you been in that place? Where it feels like something is trying to destroy your life, maybe from the inside out, or trying to destroy the life of somebody you love, and you just feel completely helpless and powerless to do anything about it. And even asking that question, God, where are you? You're supposed to do something here. Why are you not fixing this mess? Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? Their lack of faith, their struggle is weighing on him. So how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me, Jesus says. So they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, they immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Now, I want you to, to feel the, the pain of this situation. Not just these interesting words on a page, but imagine sitting here and this father with his son. And then even as Jesus is saying, what's wrong with him? The boy falls down on the ground convulsing. Jesus asked, how long has he been like this? And the father says, from childhood, since he was a little boy. And it even sometimes throws him into the fire or into the water trying to kill him. And I wonder, those of you, whether you're parents or, or spiritual fathers and mothers, discipling and mentoring the next generation, how many kids that we see that have things going on in their lives that it just feels like it's trying to destroy them, it's trying to wreck them. John 10 is really clear about this. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, but the thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy. From childhood, the father answers. It often has even tried to kill him, but, but he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us, have compassion and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately, the boy's father cries out, and this is one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, it's such a human line. And if I'm honest, it has been the state of my heart so many times with God. And maybe yours. I do believe God. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe that you're good. I do believe that I can trust you. I do believe that you're powerful and that at the end that you're going to make all things right. But honestly, God, I'm really struggling right now. Help me in this place of doubt and fear. Now, Jesus saw the crowd running to the scene, and at this point, Jesus is trying to avoid making a scene. 
He rebukes the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Just as a side note, sometimes the path to healing looks like death first. I'll say that again. Sometimes the path to healing looks like death first. Maybe you've seen that in your own life or with loved ones, that it seems like for them to to enter the road of recovery, they've got to absolutely hit rock bottom. For them to, to find the way towards wholeness and freedom, they've got to actually totally fall apart. And in this place, we see this little boy who's had this thing that's wrecking his life. It says that, that as Jesus speaks this word of healing to him, it looks like he's dead. It, it looks like things have gone from, from bad to worse, that there's no hope. And yet in that place, Jesus lifts him up and restores him to health. So the disciples, and we'll close with this, the disciples then ask, Jesus privately, they're probably a little bit embarrassed. This may be a clue to the argument that they were having earlier. Jesus, why can't we do it? We've been with you for, for two years now. We've seen you do this. We, we actually have experienced this. You sent us out, and we, we saw incredible things happen. What happened here, Jesus, that we couldn't do it? And then Jesus has this interesting line. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, a lot of the earliest manuscripts actually add a second part to that, and it'll say that this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Now, the interesting thing to ask in that is where in this story does Jesus pray or fast? I mean, look back through it. Where in this entire chapter does it mention Jesus praying or fasting? It's not in there. So if Jesus is stepping into this scene of pain and, and, and chaos and says that the, the only way to, to address this situation is by prayer and fasting, in other words, by this heart that is, that is uh, open to or in, in uh, communion with God, which is the point of prayer and fasting. Jesus' prayer and fasting did not come in the moment. It came in the life that he lived leading up to that moment. And so many times that we think that, that if we just call out to God when our life is falling apart, then we'll know what to do. But if you've ever walked through tragedy and crisis, you know that's not how it works. When our life is falling apart, we're falling apart most of the time. We can't hardly think straight. The prayer and fasting doesn't come in the moment. The prayer and the fasting leads up to the moment. It's all the times that it says that Jesus goes to be alone with the Father, that he goes up on the mountain in solitude, that they can't find him because he's woken up early before everyone else left and went to be alone. The times that he went and spent 40 days in the wilderness where he didn't take food and just encountered the presence of God and faced the temptations of this world. The invitation for us as we, as we are coming off of the mountaintops of our experiences with God and then learning to live in the reality of this world with Jesus is that we live a life of constant presence so that when the crisis come, and they will come, we can walk with God in the moment. And so for you this morning, reflecting on this story, what have been your mountaintop moments? Those times of encounter with God. And if that sounds foreign to you, like I don't, you know, I don't have one. I don't know. Maybe Jesus is inviting you into encounter with him. 
and what are the things that we learn on the mountaintop that we're able to carry with us into the everyday? What I've seen in my own life is that it is in those mountaintop experiences, those encounters with God, where he speaks a clear word into my life, where he brings healing or grace or meets me in my brokenness, that it's those moments that I can hold on to when I face struggle and temptation and crisis and anxiety in my everyday. The other day I woke up, this is just this past week, and uh, in the middle of the night, just anxious. And it wasn't even like I, uh, about anything specific. It was just kind of this swirling, a lot of unanswered questions out there. And, uh, and then also my daughter's graduating from high school, and so that's a whole new thing as a dad I'm wrestling with. I'm trying to raise you know, my kids right and, and wondering as, as a pastor, am I giving them enough time and attention? And I want them to love the church and not think the church is something that takes dad away. And, and then I'm wrestling with questions about like what's next for us as a church. And I, I see all the potential and the possibilities of in reaching this community and, and engaging in the world and, and all of these things that I just don't know what to do. And they seem so big and I don't feel like I have the answers. And even if we wanted to do it, where's the money going to come from to do any of it and how is this thing going to work and as I'm running after changing the world am I going to miss my kids and all of this going on in my brain and my heart was just pounding and it felt like it was this swirling mess of anxiety and I just laid there in my bed and I just had to and in that moment there's this way of breathing I don't know if this is helpful to you it's a total side note I wasn't planning on teaching you this but let's practice this right now it's called uh, uh, 467. Is that right? 467, 468? I'm looking at Kim Slate. Anyway, all right. So we're, I'm just going to make it up. 467 is what it is. And uh, it, it's a, it's, you breathe in for four seconds. You hold it for six. And then you exhale for seven. So I'll count because it's hard to count and breathe at the same time. You can do it in your head. It's hard to do it out loud. All right, but just close your eyes. And just breathe in. One, two, three, four. Hold it. Two, three, four, five, six. And breathe out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. In. The monastics, going all the way back to the early desert fathers, took on practices that they learned from their rabbis, going back even farther. And one of them is called centering prayer. And centering your prayer is just that reminder of the presence of Jesus with us always. And it's centering prayer as you're breathing in, and the, the, the ancient prayer in the church became uh, the simple prayer that was, come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Breathing in, come, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as you breathe out. Come, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, breathing out. So combining those two things, the breathing in with the reminder of the presence of Christ with us and then breathing out the reality of our brokenness before God, recenters us in the presence of God. Why am I telling you that story? Because when I woke up in the middle of the night and it felt like my world was falling apart, even though nothing had changed since I went to bed, uh, since I had gone to bed. And I had all of these thoughts swirling in my brain and my heart racing and anxious. What have I learned on the mountaintop is that Jesus is with me. And what have I learned in my encounters and experiences of Jesus in the everyday is that he is always available. 
And so in that place, as I lay on my bed, I just started to breathe. And I just started to, re- to, to declare, Jesus, your Lord, have mercy on me. And it felt like as I was laying there on my bed that I was just being anchored, like just centering in this place of presence with God, that all of the chaos around me felt like this cloud that couldn't touch me because it wasn't even real. Jesus became the most real thing. And I just wonder if sometimes we miss Jesus in the everyday because we expect the mountaintop experiences. And I wonder for you, even this morning, what is it that Jesus is inviting you into? What's he reminding you of? And the last image I'll give you, Ephesians 6, Paul ends this amazing letter to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. But there's this little uh, note in there, what he says is to pick up the shield of faith with which to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. And you know those fiery darts, don't you? Those lies that attack you, those things that want to undermine you or paralyze you or create anxiety or depression or turmoil in your life, those little thoughts that come that tell you that you suck, that you're messing up, that God doesn't care about you, that you're a screw-up, that he messed up when he made you, all those little fiery darts that send you off and derail you in life. And what Jesus says is to hold on to that shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts. Well, what is that shield of faith? In Romans 10, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what if that shield of faith we hold on to or the words that God has spoken over us in those mountaintop moments, those encounters where he speaks clearly into our lives and he gives us a glimpse of who he is. So when those fiery darts come, because those fiery darts will come, we lift that shield back up and we go, no, 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 I'm holding on to this because this is what's true. It's your word that's my rock. You are my salvation. It's your presence that will be the anchor for my soul. And I just wonder how often we miss the presence of God in the everyday because we keep looking for the mountaintop moments. How is Jesus wanting to meet you even right now? Because it's in that place of encounter that we're transformed. So I want to pray for us, and we're going to create space to take communion, that beautiful symbolic reminder of the presence of Christ with us, that bread that Jesus held there in the Last Supper before the cross and said, this is my body given for you, the very presence of God with you, as real as that that bread on your tongue sustaining you, Jesus in us. And he took that cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take, drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. To receive the forgiveness of God, to receive the presence of God. And so we're going to worship a little bit more. Communion set up in the, the corners over here and there, and you can take communion. I encourage you to take it as a family or as a group of friends, whoever you came with. And, and just pray for each other. Pray for whatever's going on in each other's lives. Take communion that together we're remembering the presence of God with us and for us. Also, we have our prayer team that's uh, around uh, in the back throughout the areas. They've got little lanyards on. And if there's anything going on in your life that you need prayer, let somebody pray over you. 
It's one of the most beautiful things we can do. We're now in this like informal, great little environment. Let's just pray over each other. Take communion together, worship together, pray over each other. And then we'll go eat some barbecue. That sound good? All right. So if you stand with me. So Lord Jesus, as we continue in worship, as we've opened your word and seen this encounter of your disciples with you on the mountain. God, we, we want the mountaintop experience. If I'm honest, Lord, I, I want to have those powerful moments. Like even worship, Lord, I want to, to feel your presence, to get a glimpse of your glory. But God, also, will you give me a life? We give each one of us a life that is able to hold on to you in the valley of the everyday. Lord, it's your spirit that can sustain us. It's your presence that goes with us. And may we be a people that continue to listen to your voice. May that be what defines us. Not all the good works that we do, not all the service that we can perform, not the songs we sing. <laughs> Let the thing that defines us, that defines this church, that defines this city, that we are a people who listen to your voice. Walk with us. For each one here, Lord, I pray in their own valleys, whatever they're facing right now, whatever anxiety or pressure or pain or grief or loss, struggle, will you meet them with your presence even right now in their valley? Will you remind them of the things that you've done, the places that you've shown up before? May they cling even tighter to your word. We need you, God. Amen.